0: coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We've got another round of WannaCry analysis, the latest on the FCC's battle over net neutrality, and a 2017 check-in, IPv6 tunnels, and you. Plus, some fantastic feedback, a robust roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly Systems, Network, and Administration Podcast. This episode was streamed in front of a live IRC audience and is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week is Dan the Backup Master, the Explainer, and the oh-so-busy organizer, our friend Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan.
1: Good evening, everybody. Nice Hello, to see
0: you again. What a fine orange shirt you've got on today. You look thank so you, chipper.
1: Thank you, thank you. How are I don't you today? Know where I got this shirt from. Uh, I'm good. Uh, I'm looking forward to tonight when I'm headed out to the pub uh, to meet some friends and we're playing quizzer.
0: Oh, that sounds awesome. Yes. I, s- I suppose that means we should dive right into our awesome TechSnap show today and uh, get started. What do you have lined up first for us?
1: Well, tonight we're going to read from a blog that I've known about for a while, and I have to be upfront about this. This is uh, I work with these guys. I know all the authors. Um, I work for them on a daily basis, and this is actually my employer. So, that said, we're going to talk about um, some interesting details about the Wanna Cry virus that I did not know about until I read this blog. It goes into some detail about how it works and some of the rather clever things that it does and gives you a little bit of information about how you may better protect yourself. So, um, this is a Talus blog. Player 3 has entered the game. Now, we're going to go through the executive summary rather quickly. Basically, the malware has a capability to scan heavily over TCP port 445, which is Samba, spreading similar to a worm, compromising hosts, encrypting files stored on them, and then demanding a ransom payment in the form of Bitcoin. It is important to note that this is not a threat that simply scans internal ranges to identify where to spread. It is also capable of spreading based on vulnerabilities it finds in other hosts, and other externally-facing hosts across the Internet. Additionally, we have observed WannaCry samples making use of double pulsar, which is a persistent backdoor that is generally used to access and execute code on previously compromised systems. So, so not only is it looking for new systems to take over, it's looking for systems which have already been compromised. So, the malware uses Eternal Blue for the initial exploitation of the Samba vulnerability. If successful, it will then implant the, the double pulsar backdoor and utilize it to install the malware. But if the exploit fails and the double pulsar backdoor has already installed the malware, it will still leverage this to install the ransomware. This is the cause of the worm-like activity that has been widely observed across the Internet. So, organizations should ensure that devices running windows are fully patched and deployed in accordance with best practices. Additionally, organizations should have Samba ports 139 and 445 blocked from all externally accessible hosts. Now, the Canadian government is actually doing a scan. It has a program to do a scan for externally accessible Samba ports. And Alan Jude brought this to my attention um, yesterday or today, I can't remember. But he was telling me that he got an email because he has a publicly accessible Samba port, but it's not, It's they use it for, for setting up posts. But there, there are state organizations helping out here and letting people know that, hey, listen, you may want to look at this. They're not saying you have to change it, they're just letting you know that it's accessible, which is nice. Now, what I hadn't seen somewhere else is the kill switch domain. Now, if you scroll down to under under the first graph, you can see the little green graph, they notice an upscan in the up- uptick in the scanning of our internet facing honeypot starting shortly before 5am which is about 9 UTC so that's the graph of the uh, of, of the queries coming in so then they first observed requests for the kill switch domains starting at about 724 UTC and there's the name of the domain it starts with I-U-Q-E-F
0: oh yeah it rolls now, right off the tongue
1: yeah it does now, I remember seeing domains like this when I worked for um, a registrar, and these are typically used by bad actors, you know random stuff like this that no one would accidentally um, register. And the interesting note here is the domain composition looks almost human typed, with most characters falling into the top and home rows of a keyboard. So someone's just sitting here and, and randomly hitting keys to generate this.
0: Yeah, it does actually. I didn't notice that at first, but you're right. It does really like I could just like type jam yep. on the keyboard for a while, and that's exactly yep. what would come out.
1: Yep. Yep. So communication to this domain might be categorized as a kill switch due to its role in the overall execution of the malware. So it attempts to do an HTTP GET to this domain, and if it fails, it just carries on Mm. with the infection. However, if it succeeds, the subroutine exits and they note that the domain is registered to a well-known sinkhole, effectively causing this sample to terminate its malicious activity. Now, what's a sinkhole? It's a, they refer to a DNS sinkhole, which is also known as a sinkhole server. And it's basically an internet sinkhole or, sorry, an internet sinkhole or black hole DNS is a DNS server that gives out false information to prevent the use of a domain name. So in this case all they did was register it and if you try and go go to it or, or make use of it nothing happens but you can you could do a fetch on it at that time. Now um, then they they mentioned that this uh, information this domain was registered on the 12th of May which corresponds is, corresponds to other claims made uh, about this domain when it was f- registered by the researcher in question. Now, this is the stuff that I found found the most interesting, and this was the analysis of the malware and what it's doing. Basically, they, they, they start off with two threads. The first thread checks the IP address of the infected machine and attempts to connect to TCP port 445 which is Samba, of each host or IP address in the same subnet. The second thread generates random IP addresses on the internet to perform the same action. So here's a thread and all it's doing is trying to scan everything locally and then it's going out on the internet to find things out there. When the malware successfully connects to another machine, a connection is initiated and data is transferred. So it starts sending the stuff out right away. Now, there is another executable in here, which checks for disk drives including network shares and removable storage devices, mapped to a letter such as C, D, E, etc. The malware then checks for files with with a file extension as listed in the appendix, and encrypts these files using 248-bit RSA encryption. You ain't getting into that easily. So while the files are being encrypted, The malware creates a new directory called Tor into which it drops Tor.exe and nine DLL files used by Tor. So why does it it want Tor? Basically, the, the Tor file is executed by this other process, which initiates network traffic connections to Tor nodes. And this allows WannaCry to attempt to preserve anonymity by proxying their traffic through the Tor network. So basically, now what they're doing is they're phoning home and they're phoning home through the Tor network.
0: Right. Interesting.
1: So it tries various methods to aid its execution by leveraging both at, at, at trib.exe to modify the plus H flag hide and also ICALCLS.exe to allow full access rights for all users. So basically, it grants everything on everyone for everyone everything every everything on everything for everyone and they want to do that because they want to start encrypting stuff and what's interesting is that the malware has been designed as a modular service so it looks like the executable files associated with the ransomware were written by a totally different individual who developed the service module so this means that the structure of this malware malware is such that it can deliver and run different malicious payloads so you develop a new malicious pay- payload and plug it in, and you've already got the ser- service side of it ready, and it's just plug and play. So scroll down now and sh- show this uh, Decryptor 2.0 uh, screenshot.
0: Oh, look at that. That's so red. So, I'm a little scared right now.
1: Now, what's interesting about this is this contains no images. It's not an HTML f- file or a text file. After encryption is complete, the malware displays this ransomware note. And this ransom screen is actually an executable. So there's no text or graphics that you can search for or block based on. It's just an executable.
0: Oh, interesting. So they've like embedded everything within it. Mm
1: -hmm. Now, this next thing that I'm going to read is very important. These sorts of ransomware things can only occur if people pay up. If nobody paid up, if there is no money in this, they wouldn't be carried out. They would dry up. But people are paying out because they have no choice. So basically, you should be aware that there is, I'm quoting here now, organizations should be aware that there is no obligation for criminals to supply decryption keys following the payment of a ransom. Telus strongly urges anyone who's been compromised to avoid paying the ransom, if possible, as paying the ransom directly funds development of these malicious campaigns. So you pay up, the campaign continues. Now, going into the final section that we're going to read over is mitigation and prevention. So basically, if you want to avoid falling into this trap, Keep your stuff fully patched. At a minimum, ensure Microsoft Bulletin MS17-010 has been applied. And basically, do the right thing. If you have um, an SMB publicly accessible by the Internet, port 139 and 445, you should immediately block inbound traffic because that's how you're going to get infected. Basically, you should also consider blocking connections to Tor nodes and Tor traffic on on the network. Known Tor exit nodes are listed within the security intelligence feed of Firepower devices. This is one of, of Cisco's devices. You can also get that information somewhere else. So enabling this list to be blacklisted will prevent outbound communications to Tor networks. That seems seems
0: reasonable if you're not, you know, if you're on a secure network where you're, you know, you are not using those services at all.
1: Yeah. So maybe what we should do is, can you think of any valid reasons for companies to have a uh, um, Tor in use?
0: That's a good question. Um, You know, maybe maybe like journal journalistic organizations or some, you know, some, some sort of like uh, nonprofits or other things might need it, but you know, like an average tech organization, you know, your public companies, et cetera, like maybe not. Like, yeah. I, I definitely think it's important. And I like, I don't want to like, yeah. I don't want to advocate for like too much lockdown where it yeah. might in, you know, inhibit something that we would want later, but you're right. Like, you know, this could be an easy way to kind of shut off some of this stuff.
1: Yeah, m- most people don't need it. Mm-hmm. You you can you, you, if you need it, you can manage it on a case by case basis. Right,
0: and there's always yeah, right. If you have a legitimate use case, then you can always submit a ticket and go through the process and mm-hmm. blah blah yep. blah. Interesting. Well, this is a, this is quite the uh, quite the, quite the breakdown.
1: Um, yeah, the, the, these guys are good. I like these guys. Definitely.
0: Uh, anything else you want to add for this story?
1: Uh, no, thank you.
0: Awesome. Okay, well with that, let's jump right to our first sponsor today. That's our friends over at digitalocean.com. Head on over to digitalocean.com. There you will find cloud computing designed for developers. What does that mean? Well, I think I think it means that, you know, they're trying to they're trying to make things easy. They're trying to make things simple, they're trying to make things quick. They want to enable you to make awesome new products, services, startups, games, websites, blogs, podcasts, whatever it is that you're trying to create. DigitalOcean. Can be the partner for you. So, going over to digitalocean.com, use our promo code. Yeah, that's right. Promo code one word, Snap Ocean. Yeah, Snap Ocean. Say it with me now. That will get you a $10 credit. What does that $10 credit get you? Well, go make an account. Got to make an account first, then apply the promo code, then head right over to that pricing page. There you will find simple, no nonsense pricing, monthly plans. Maybe you want hourly plans. Whatever you want, DigitalOcean is there for you. Prices start at just $5 a month. For for that, you get 512 MB of memory, one core processor, 20 gigs of pure SSD disk. Yeah, it's all SSDs over DigitalOcean. They were some of the first to jump on the SSD bandwagon. Their droplets are snappy fast. They start in less than 55 seconds, and you get a whole terabyte of premium transfer. Plus, with that $10 credit, that's like two months. So if you're anything like me, you're going to try this for like two months and be like, wow, for $5 a month, I just can't, I can't not do this. It's too good of a deal. It's so nice They have a ton of Linux distributions that you want to use. Ubuntu, Debian, Fedora, Container Linux, FreeBSD, pretty much whatever you want. And because they use real KVM virtualization underneath, you can follow some, I mean, you know, if you're a more advanced user, you can follow some guides, you can start running Arch, you can run OpenBSD, NetBSD. Really, the sky is the limit. Plus, DigitalOcean has really been stepping their game up. They compete like none other with a lot of these like bigger cloud companies that you might have heard about, you might be using, you might think, oh, I really need this, you know, such and such brand to get this feature. No. Go check out DigitalOcean. It's really worth reassessing, even if you've looked at them before, because in the past couple of months, they have added a ton of new features, features like load balancing, monitoring. And right now, they're just working on adding high CPU droplets. So if you really have those important workloads, DigitalOcean is now a great option. Plus, they have all the features that you've come to expect, right? Like private networking between droplets in the same data center. They've got snapshots. They've got attachable storage. Yeah, that's SSD. And they've got all the wonderful things that you've come to expect, plus their community page, right? So DigitalOcean is a great place to go check out really any kind of guide or... Networking, situate, you know, whatever you need, go to the community page. If you search it on Google, probably one of the first things you'll find is a link to DigitalOcean because they pay real editors to take community submissions, turn them into great documentations. That just shows like DigitalOcean understands the projects you want to run, the software you're trying to create, and they want to be your awesome partner. So go get started in less than 55 seconds. DigitalOcean.com, our promo code, SnapOcean, that Let's DigitalOcean know that you appreciate them sponsoring our program, and then you can let us know all the cool things you create with DigitalOcean. Okay, that brings us to our next topic today, which is uh, involves the FCC. We've covered them before. They have some filings. You know, I'm not I'm not prepared to be excited about this. Really has been kind of depressing. But Dan, maybe that shouldn't be the case. Tell us more. Well,
1: it's been well known that the FCC want to change the rules on uh, net neutrality. And some people have been arguing that basically nothing has changed because the rules that were going to come come in never actually came in. And now we're just back to where we were. But John Oliver runs a TV show. You may have heard of it. He, you may have heard of it. And he's a bit... Um, concerned that what's about to happen is basically not good for the rest of us. And I agree with him. It's not good for the rest of us. Net neutrality is a very important issue for everyone, whether you're using the internet heavily or not. So basically he said, hey, listen, here, here's a way that you can um, let the FCC know what, know what you think about it. And I believe that shortly thereafter, um, the FCC was claiming that they were being DDoSed. Um, other people claim that, well, that's what happened when you wind up having a, a whole lot of submissions. But they're claiming DDoS. People are just claiming, no, basically, your servers get overwhelmed with the amount of incoming information. Um, so... This analysis says that the public comments on the FCC's anti-net neutrality proceeding proceeding have exploded over the past week following an incisive pro-net neutrality rant from John Oliver on Sunday, the proceeding which had accumulated about 40,000 public comments as of Friday, May 7th at 8 p.m., just prior to Oliver's segment. Has now seen more than 1.4, 1.1 million comments, as of five days later. Now, to put that in perspective, in five days they got 28 times more submissions than what had than what they had before. And what's interesting about these submissions is it appears that a lot of the names and addresses for some of the Pro changes, like the people that that are not in favor of net neutrality going away. It looks like some of the addresses used for this uh, came from a breach. Interesting. They had also contacted a few people who said, no, I never submitted that. So it looks like someone went and collected downloaded this publicly available breach data and used it to submit claims that didn't actually have real people behind it. Now, it's kind of difficult to wade through this and figure out how much of this was real and how much of this wasn't real. But this one particular person's um, analysis of it is that overwhelmingly the submissions support net neutrality in fact only two percent opposed it and only one and a half percent were neither support nor opposed so 96 percent of the the non-spam filings on net neutrality favored supporting net neutrality neutrality now you got to be very careful here. Here to draw to draw to, when he's talking about this spam. If you go back up to the top of the page, he says he uses the term spam to indicate an identical bit of text that was repeatedly filed many times. Importantly, we don't know exactly what share of these spam messages are legitimate, although we do know that some are fabricated. There is some evidence of botting or spamming on the pro and and pro net neutrality side as well, although not likely to the same degree. And it's not addressed in this post and it could shift the conclusions and he welcomes other people to address these caveats and he's happy to share or collaborate with any of the data. Now, if you look at the anti-net neutrality stuff, it all came in between May 11th and May 12th in a huge burst of messages. So there was about 40,000, I'm looking here, between thirty and 40,000 submissions per hour. That's crazy. From about midday on the 11th up to May 12th. Wow. Now, compared to all the pro stuff that came in mostly late, May 8th after the show
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then it died down in the morning and then it came up again as people woke up and then it died down late in the day again. And then again on May 11th, there is a peak and then throughout May um, 11th and 12th, it sort of was almost even
2: mm-hmm. and there's a
1: little bit more on the 12th. So it it is sort of, whenever you look at a network traffic, um, graph, say, for a website. You always see these peaks during the day. You know, the East Coast wakes up, and it peaks up, and the West Coast come up, wakes up, and it keeps going up. And then as the West Coast starts to go to sleep, it dies down again. Now, this is, you know, of course, that's for U.S.-centric sites, but I've seen these sort of peaks and valleys all the time in my own data, so...
0: Yeah, absolutely. like You know, the, it, it the natural familiar. rhythms of human, yeah. human behavior.
1: Whereas... The anti net neutrality spam was, it, there's a few peaks, there's nothing rolling like this, and then bang, midday, Tuesday, it jumps straight up to 35,000. How did 35,000 people suddenly happen like that? That didn't happen with the pro stuff from Oliver's. So there's more and more evidence pointing to the fact that most of this pro stuff was done by bots
0: yeah that's that's really interesting. And I like this type of analysis. you know it's interesting to see uh, see how you can kind of break it down, try to infer a little bit about people's people's behavior, um, the source of some of these filings, especially with like a you know a reasonably public data set like this.
1: Yes. And if you go to the website, what was it? go FCC yourself fcc Oh, there we go. So, because of a procedural quirk, the FCC will not be considering any comments on the issue of net neutrality that are submitted over the next week or so. So, what quirk is that, I wonder? What I wonder as well. That?
0: Let's take a peek
1: here. Oh, that's interesting. Hmm, yes. May um. 11th. Guidance on the FCC's Sunshine Period and
0: the Restoring Internet Freedom proceeding. Oh, that's quite a name.
1: Yeah, um, I have no idea why they're getting all concerned about this. Of course, that's because they're trying to figure out what happened with the DDoS. It wasn't DDoS, not not based on anything I see.
0: No, it seems it, it seems to be organic.
1: Lot. Yeah, because. People may not understand what the term organic means. What it means basically is when, when you ask people to go and respond to something, you don't get 70 million people all go in, go, go in and do it all at once. It, it gradually peaks as more and more people, you know, they watch the show, they say, yeah, I'll do that, but they don't all do it at once. It, it builds to a peak and then mm-hmm. it gradually goes, on, goes down again. Um, or organic stuff likes little bell curves like that. So...
0: Right. You could, you know, it, in some ways you can model this like a bunch of people who are, you know, there are some coordination, but mostly they're doing they're doing their own behavior. When they happen to watch the show is different. It's not, you know, it's not directly coordinated.
1: Some of them may have been watching on a delay. Mm-hmm. They get home, they start watching it on video. Some people have anyway.
0: patience. It's going to save the new episode for a day later somehow.
1: Mm-hmm. 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 So the conclusion of the gentleman who did this analysis is the FCC should reconsider its position on net neutrality. That's his statement. Now, the FCC has now entered a sunshine period for docket 17-108, during which it will not consider new comments. Given the magnitude of filings, 695,000, if you exclude the spam, right. and the balance of opinion expressed, 97% in favor of net This analysis suggests that the FCC should reconsider its position on net neutrality during this period of reflection. (laughs) Wow. So the guy is trying to make all his information public.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And the top comment here is, if this is passed against the will of an overwhelming majority of the public, we can say definitively that we do not live in a functional democracy. And then someone else says, oh, of course, it'll pass.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, boy. Well, this is like a fascinating analysis. Um, I'm, I'm really glad to see that I don't – I'm prepared to be disappointed with what happens next. I'm sure we'll cover it right here on the TechSnap program um, in terms of, you know, the FCC's rulings and decisions and as the process moves on. But it is really nice mm-hmm. to see, you know, to see people engaged in this. And like I said, I don't know how it's going to go, but um, – At least people people should at least be aware of what's happening their you know, their rights, how it impacts their ability for free speech content acquisition, you know, and how does it really affect their day to day lives and the thing the values that they care about, because it's really presented often as, you know, like a dry academic subject in some ways. So I think like the the work John Oliver's done, this article, maybe us covering it, you know, it, it can bring it a little bit closer to people's day to day lives.
1: Consider that if net neutrality was not in existence, Google could never have happened. Yeah, right. Who, yeah, exactly. who are the big Who the big players then? Alta Vista, Yahoo. Mm-hmm. They were huge. Google could never have gotten started if net neutrality was not observed. Yeah, that's because they good would point. have just been sh- sh- they would have been shut out. They couldn't. They couldn't have got there. People would have said, "Oh no, I want my Yahoo. I want this." So, anyway, uh, contact your representatives, let them know that you're in support of net neutrality rules, and don't be messing around with what's already working.
0: Yes, exactly. Turns out the uh, the internet wasn't broken, so don't try to break it now. Something like that, anyway. Exactly. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Dan. I guess that makes it time for our second sponsor this evening. That's right. Our friends at Ting. Ting Ting.com mobile that makes sense and let me just correct that that's techsnap.ting.com. that lets you, them know that you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program here what will you get if you go there you'll find a smarter way to do mobile the average ting bill is just $23 per month per phone i know that sounds incredible right $23 a month what do i what do i get for that is that i mean is that anything how do that's like what like 10 messages no my friend's ting operates on a different model and and they're not like these other big carriers, sure, you know, they they may be a reseller of those carriers, but Ting wants to focus on you the customer. That's why they have a killer dashboard. You don't need to spend time especially like, "Hey, my cell phone's not working. How do I how do I call my cell phone provider?" You don't need to. Ting has an awesome app. It has an awesome dashboard. They really give you the tools to administer your own account and make it to make it work really well. Plus, it's pay for what you use yeah that's right pay for what you use your minutes your messages your megabytes go on over to their rates page there you'll find this really fun really fun website it lets you just kind of click on some boxes put together what it will be line start at just six dollars a month then you just pay for your minutes messages and megabytes if you don't use some of those you don't pay for them if you don't use anything it's just six dollars a month yeah maybe there's some like taxes and fees and stuff Ding can't do anything about that that's uncle sam's story that's all right just ignore that part six dollars a month If you go to techsnap.ting.com, you'll get to use our promo code, which is, I mean, you got it right there. It's techsnap.ting.com. That gets you a $25 credit. You can use that on your first month's bill. Or, hey, you know, you can bring your own phone to Ting, but they also have an awesome shop. So go go to their shop. You'll find lots of awesome phones. One of the great things about Ting is that they make it really easy to work with a ton of phones. So whether you need a CDMA phone, you need a GSM phone, you have one that does both. Ting works with all of those. SIM cards started only like nine dollars. You can buy the latest Apple iPhone seven. You know, you watch the TextNet program. You hear Dan talking about the the iPhone all the time. You're like, ooh, I'd like a I'd like a secure phone. Boom, go to Ting, get the pick that up right new right now. They, they offer some financing, but it's not this kind of like crazy financing where you're like uh does this like affect my premiums and i'm in some contract and if i try to leave it's like no none of that there's no early termination fee there's no contracts there's no overage charges there's no like oh well you get like three gigs of tethering data but if you use more than you have to pay this extra fee no none of that you just pay for what you use the rates are very simple That's why Ting is mobile that makes sense. They just do things differently. They're not trying to, you know, be the next media company that sells you your stuff. They're not trying to have their own app store or their own payment store built into your phone. They don't get in the way of your updates from the, you know, from your firmware provider. None of it. They're just simple. Pay for what you use mobile. This is exactly what we need. So go check out techsnap.ting.com. And that brings us today's feedback segment, This section of the show where we hear from you, our wonderful audience, It usually makes us happy, maybe sometimes upset, and always curious to hear more. First up today, we've got a letter in from Boston. I hope I've pronounced that right. If not, hey, just give us more feedback correcting me. Uh, He's writing today about IPv6 only. Let's check this out. He writes, Hi. Firstly, I would like to apologize for my English, which is my second language. I hope you will understand my meaning. Hey, so far, so good. And uh, no matter, uh, we're happy to work through that. Thank you very much for writing to us. I would like to say that I've been watching TechSnap for about five years now. Awesome. And I still love it. Dan, I really like your attitude against people who make, made a terrible mistake or that they've had a breach or something. That you feel sorry about this, uh, that, you're, you know, that these people are in a bad situation. Admirably worthy characteristics of yours. I will also try to do this now as well. I think you have a good personality. Hey, I agree with that, Dan. So those are some nice compliments. Um, Thank you. I have some networking questions. I really hope you can give me a solution. Well, we can do our best anyway. Recently, I discovered that my ISP, um, you know, besides giving me a static IPv4 address, also provides me with a static IPv6 address. So my network is accessible through both IPv4 and IPv6. In IPv4 world, we got used to NAT you wanted a server in your network to be accessible from the internet you had some solutions port forward proxy reverse proxy vpn dot 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 i think in ipv6 world it is a little bit different a server in my network can be accessible from the internet directly by its ipv6 address am i correct here is my concern how i how will i be able to access my ipv6 only server from another isp for instance from my neighbor's house where their router supports only ipv6 Or perhaps if my mobile provider or my roaming mobile provider don't support IPv6. Will it help if I use IPv6 address to connect directly to my IPv6-only server from IPv4-only ISP? Or will DNS somehow help? I hope you still understand what I'm trying to ask. Do you have any real-life experiences like this? My second question, or should I say a deep-dive request, talk about IPv6. I grew up in an IPv4-only world, and now everywhere I look, it's still IPv4. Although IPv6 is almost 20 years old, we still think and work in the IPv4 world. Can you please make a detailed comparison and, uh, you know, benefits, costs, etc., of 6 over 4? For instance, these these comparisons, you know, PV6 prefix delegation, NDP, subnetting, private internal network addresses, gateways, loopbacks, link local addresses, the list goes on. And then he, uh, he provides us some more information here, like what his IP address range is, which has been redacted. Thank you, Dan. Um, and then asks a question you know, Does this mean that I've got in my network 4.7 times 10 to the 21 of IPv6 addresses? Four sextillion? Thanks for the help and possible deep dive. Keep up on the great work. Boston. That's some awesome feedback. I mean, that's a lot to unpack there, so it might take us a second, but uh, that's awesome. Thank you for providing us with the details and I think that's a pretty good request. What do you think of it, uh, Deep Dive to Beer?
1: Well, I went to see when I first used IPv6, mm, and mm-hmm. my first blog post on it seems to have been 2006. So that's about 11 years ago. And I've only used um, Hurricane Electric Tunnels, I've never had native IPv6. Now, one of the things he mentions is that in the IPv4 world, we get used to NAT. Well, it didn't always used to be that way because we NAT came about because there weren't enough IP v IP four it's IP four and four. It's hard to keep E4. it straight. Yeah, IP four addresses used to be plentiful, but when the internet was first created, they only had this many bits. And then the Internet took off, and that many bits wasn't enough. And that's how IPv6 came about. But at one time, you would be given, say, a slash 24 or a slash 16. And there are a lot of companies that still have huge swaths of slash 16 uh, IP publicly routable. That's the key, publicly routable. IP addresses. You still see a so, lot of
0: universities that have
1: those, mm-hmm, you know, those big grants yep. or early corporations. Yep. yep. So when you have publicly routable IP addresses, you don't use NAT. You basically the the data comes into the firewall, the packets come into the firewall, and they go straight off to that computer inside. There's no NAT involved. NAT came about mostly for places that couldn't get their own subnet. So basically, they were given us an IP address by their ISP, and then everything that happened inside there had to be NATed, and that's where NAT came about. So IPv6 isn't very different. There's no NAT needed. You just allow or block things on an IP by IP address basis. You'll probably be allowing certain IP addresses to come in and denying everything else. So... So to answer the question is, yes, a server in your network can be accessible from the internet directly to its IPv6. It can be. You can choose to block it, and I suggest you do unless you have a good reason to allow it, and then allow only the ports that are relevant for that host. Um, So your next question is, will I be able to access my IPv6-only router from another ISP? Short answer, yes. If they have IPv6, you can get there. And you've allowed your IP um, traffic to flow through your firewall to that server. For instance, from your neighbor's house, where their server supports only IPv4, no. You can't get there from here. Um, you, If you don't have IPv6 locally, you can't get, to anything that's on ipv6 sometimes people provide ipv4 addresses for their ipv6 services but then they're handling that that translation
0: right you still need something that has an ipv4 address to do that translation
1: yeah but you can't get there the short answer is no if you don't have ipv6 on your on your machine you can't get to a machine that has ipv6 that's the simple answer if your mobile provider doesn't support IPv6, no, you can't get there. Um, will it help if I use an IPv6 address? Yeah, you could, but if you if your current network that you're on doesn't support IPv6, you're not going to get to your IPv6 address. Um, DNS will help, yes, but again, it won't help if... IPv6 is not supported on the network that you're on. Um, now, I know that some people at home have gone entirely IPv6, and when they go it into the real world, uh, and it's headed to a IPv4 address, IP4 address, they have something called IPv6 to IP4 address translation. So that works as well. Um, He has a slash 56. Did you see that? Do you know how much that is? Yes, I think his math is right. I did the math. Uh, Basically, he winds up with, let me see here. Um, He gets an IPv4 slash 64 contains 18, uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 sets of triple zeros, IPv4 addresses, and he has 256 of those. Yes. So he has more IPv6 addresses than he will ever need, even if he assigns one address per byte of RAM that he has in his computer.
0: I think that's great, though. Like, it's nice because the the, the recommendations, I believe, um, like, from RIPE, etc., you know, for, like, larger networks, it's a 48... And then, you know, like yep. a 52 or a 56, and then some people yeah. end up with a 64. I think that's unfortunate. Some IPs, I, ISPs do that, but and maybe for like just your average home person, that's not too bad. But especially with IPv6 recommending that, you know, you don't mm-hmm. split subnets below slash yeah. 64. It's really nice to have those, you know, the 256 of those subnets if you wanted to be able to have, you know, those on different VLANs or other things at home. I'm not sure what I have. Yeah, that's a good question. I think right Um, now I only have a 64. I might be able to change how I'm requesting that and get it increased. I'll have to look into that. I am um, definitely very interested in IPv6, and I would love to not have to
1: fight with NAT so much. That would really be wonderful. Who who provides your NAT IPv6? Uh,
0: I use a local Seattle um, ISP called Cascade Link.
1: So you get it native? Yes. Yeah.
0: And it's uh, it's Ethernet right to my apartment, which is nice. I can see the switch is in my hallway. I can I walk by it every day.
1: I don't like you. <laughs> it's pretty nice. I have um, I'm looking for Tunnel Broker.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Hurricane Electric is great to mention yeah, for that, this kind of thing. That
1: that that's who I'm using. Didn't and the other big one
0: just close down? I thought
1: I saw. What were they called? Who who is the other one?
0: Um. Let's see here <sighs> Uh, 6XS
1: Here we go I don't know them
0: So I think they were doing uh, a similar thing Where they were providing Tunnels Let's see here Ch-ch-ch-ch.
1: I'm yeah. just trying to get into my Hurricane Electric account And where's my Ah, oh, there it is
0: Oh, yeah, here we go. So they used to do the same kind of thing where they would provide a tunnel. Currently, 6XS is not accepting signups, nor tunnel or subnet requests. Um, we're doing this action to ensure that instead of going the easy way of using our service, you should go mm-hmm. call your ISP and get IPv6. This is in the hope that they finally realize that yes. it was 2016 already, that IPv6 is 20 years old, as pointed out by our feedback yes. person, and that they should really have deployed IPv6 already. Yeah, I mean, that's that's hard to argue with.
1: So I have a routed slash 64, and I have a routed slash 48. So it appears I have two slash 48s. I'm allowed to have two more, three more. I'm allowed to have three more tunnels, each with a slash 48, I'm guessing. I don't know. I haven't looked. But, yeah, basically, if you can't get native IPv6, Use Hurricane Electric and do it that way. So basically, my FreshPort server has a slash forty-eight, which is ridiculous. That's
0: awesome. I know I had a lot of fun uh, last year. I was playing with. I was using uh, Lex D as a container thing, but I was um, I was paying for a hardware server and I was setting it all up with this and trying to set it up as a big build uh-huh. host. And IPv6 just made it so simple. I could spin up a new container and DHCP, and then it would have a public IPv6 address. It was just. It was so simple. And, uh, unfortunately like there's lots of places, coffee shops and my work at the time and other places where it's just like, I couldn't, they only had IPv4 and it's like, this is making it so painful and I have to duplicate all this stuff and set up the, yeah, exactly.
1: This is your friend.
0: Yeah, that's a very good point. I really might have to look into that.
1: For those that don't know, we talked about this up air. This is a, uh... What do you call it? A, an access point? Yeah, or wireless hotspot. Some do people, people say. refer to it as MiFi or something or <laughs> yeah, Wi-Fi. Mi-fi, Wi-Fi, yeah.
0: wireless access but, point, hotspot. But spot. yeah,
1: the, the, this supports IPv6. I haven't verified that it works, but a friend of mine has one, a colleague, and he tells me that, that it yeah, IPv6. if anything it seems
0: like uh, some of the, the mobile providers have been some of the first i mean they're also doing like carrier grade nat and stuff but i think because yes. of that they've been some of the first to jump on the ipv6 bandwagon which mm-hmm. is
1: nice yep yep so yeah there, there there's your feedback um hopefully it works mm-hmm. uh I wish I had native IPv6. Thanks for Ryzen, Fias. <laughs> when are you coming to the ball game? Yeah. And thank you, thank you very much, Hurricane Electric, for allowing me to have a, to use your IPv6 networks. And if Free anyone else, charge, uh, might
0: yeah, add. exactly. If anyone else wants to talk about IPv6 or wants to see us maybe do a deep dive on it in the future, please write in and uh, let us know. That'll be very helpful. Thank you. Okay, on to our second feedback item today, and that's from our friend in the IRC room, Mr. Architect. He was writing about ZOL and other Linux file systems. Howdy, guys. Great show. Again, as usual, just thought I'd follow up on the feedback another listener submitted regarding rough edges with ZFS on Linux. He's referring to the feedback segment on episode 318 as I've had some trouble with it myself. I'd like to think that I'm pretty well-versed with maintaining Linux systems that I've run Gen 2 as my daily driver for the better part of two years, even running it as my workstation at work. After switching to using uh, ZOL as my root file system, I began running into issues that I'd not run into before, like my system failing to get past to the bootloader, um and running into things like grub2 actually caring what my root file system is and what file system it is seriously my boot leader needs to know that crap now that's kind of the whole point of your inner ramfs and then running into trouble where grub2 didn't want to boot any multi-pool drives oh that sounds annoying and verifying that the spl and kernel versions are compatible yeah that's a thing as well as making sure that my libc's pthreads was compatible to actually import the zpool just so many points where things go wrong after the install assuming you managed to get a distro that even allows you to install the spl and zfs in the live environment For instance, Void's kernel version was too new at the time to work with the SPL. As a side note, XFS has ruined some games for me on Steam for some reason and had a tendency to break beyond repair after the first boot. No idea why, so that really wasn't great for general use. After all that hassle and seeing how fantastic ZFS was, I really couldn't go back to EXT 3 4 ButterFS, XFS, MurderFS, Riser 4, or JFS, no matter how great the hardware support was. So now I'm a mostly happy user with TrueOS, Dragonfly, FreeBSD, HardenBSD, Open OpenIndiana, and Plan9, depending on how much free time I have and which bit of hardware I'm trying to use at the moment. I just can't leave these wonderful native file systems. CFS, Hammer, and the potential for Hammer 2? I'll switch back to Linux when at least one of them is ported over. Seriously, at this point, we should just, we should just port Hammer instead of wasting more time with ButterFS, or at least pitch in to get Hammer 2 running sooner. I'm sure these issues aren't really all that relevant when you're in the enterprise and you don't use a recent kernel since there's no, you know, there's next to no risk of the SPL breaking compatibility, but it does make it significantly more difficult for the power users of us out there who want to have a great file system for the devices that serve multiple roles and the often-cited developers who would certainly get pissed if their file system breaks before being able to sync all their source code back to the repo, or even worse, if the repo's file system trashes their code. Just one thing that really seems to need some love, if Linux is going to continue this meteoric rise in adoption and general use. Though I won't complain if it means more work on BSD and Illumos. But yeah, just thought I'd share some of my file system woes since I've had it come up in the last show. And additionally, Wes, hey, that's me. Great talk with Chris about the state of Linux file systems at Linux Fest Northwest. Though I disagree with the general consensus that ext4xfs is good enough, because unless they start covering ground fairly quickly, they're not going to be good enough for all that long. Well, thank you, Architect. I know we certainly appreciate you hanging out here uh, live so often, being a part of the JB network. And also, thank you for uh, your feedback here. I'll just start with that last bit. Thank you. Uh, Linux Fest Northwest was a lot of fun. And I think you're right about that. It's like, you know, the spirit of my comment there was really, I think, exactly what you're saying. You know, they're maybe good enough now. It works fine for I'm installing Linux on my laptop, and I don't, you know, I have backups and other things. But I think you are right that Linux needs to be working on those things to maintain to you know, maintain competitiveness and to be planning for the future. I can't comment too much on, you know, a lot of the individual file system woes. It's really too bad. In my experience, XFS has been pretty rock solid. We use it a lot of work and in some other large deployments I've seen. Um, it's obviously no ZFS in terms of checksumming, snapshots, all of those other features. Um, so I'm not quite sure what you ran into, but it'd be very interesting to hear more about that and uh, you know see some sort of systemic surveys, studies on this kind of data. I would also be interested, you know, I think it would be great to see more cross-file system development or sharing between things like, I don't can I even mount like FreeBSD's UFS on my Linux systems? I'm not, I'm not sure. I've never tried. Uh, But it seems like, especially since we're all working with these open source file systems, it'd be a lot better to see, I mean, ZFS is really the best for it right now if you want to run, you know, have a decent file system on more than one operating system. What are your thoughts, Dan?
1: I didn't know this. I didn't know he was going to slam so hard. I read the first bit about Zivall and said, "Oh, I don't know about this," and so gave it to you. (laughs) And I didn't. I didn't know that he started then talking about these other operating systems. I thought it was just a question about uh, uh, about Zivall and stuff. Sorry. Um, The I have heard stories of people just. Taking their ZFS system and moving it from one operating system to another. And because the versions of the OS that they're using could read that particular version of ZFS, you, you can't get ahead of the, the game. Right. You, it, it is backwards compatible. So if you're backwards compatible with whatever you're using, you should be fine. And I have I've known people to do that. Um, I'm not, not sure if, if Hammer is helpful here for you or not. Uh, I don't know enough about it. Um, and I don't know if if you'll be able to port it over to Linux at all. Um, but, yeah, I agree. Z, ZFS seems to be the best thing to be using at the moment. It's way ahead of all, all the other file systems that he's talking about. Um, it's definitely... More stable. It may not be as stable under Linux yet as it is under some of the other operating systems it's been on, but that's only be a matter of time. Um, how old is, it, is ZFS? Is it is it ten years old or something or 15 like on the years order old? of ten? Right? Yeah, it, it's like two thousand
0: four. Let's see. It
1: it is sufficiently stable on FreeBSD that a lot of big shops are using it for very important stuff okay looks Not like to it was introduced the 35 in- terabytes back there yes Sorry?
0: right uh, introduced November 2005 with open Solaris
1: okay so 12 years ago it came out with open Solaris 12 years ago Yeah. You got to be careful with new file file systems. Uh, right? What did Apple do? Apple came out with APFS. Is that what they're calling? So they put it on all their iPhones. They put it on all their. Whoops. Cord out. They put it on all their iPhones first before they start coming out on OS X because they can. They they have a huge installation base here and come up with any fixes and stuff in a rather controlled environment rather than deploying it into the wild with. Users like you and me, but yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. You know, and I do feel some of his pain. Um, I've not run into all of those problems with um, CFS on Linux, but I've certainly heard stories like this that people have. And you do, you know, you can't really get away from. It's not, you know, it's not upstream in the kernel. You have to build modules for it. You can run into compatibility issues. There's a lot of, you know, installers, bootloaders, other things in the Linux ecosystem are only now kind of catching up with a lot of that configuration and having, I mean, I think just the latest Grub release finally added some more, you know, like um, LZ4 and stuff, like, uh, you know, various stuff that really makes it a little bit more, more feature compatible with some of the native ZFS systems. And I think he really hit it on the head when he talks about, you know, if you want to have, you know, you're a power user, you want to have all this like on your laptop, you want to have snapshots and other things instead ZFS, it works a lot better, right? If you can just have, a, you know, a, a stable kernel server in the corner where you do all your file system work or you have a FreeBSD or a free NAS or whatever, like then you kind of don't have to worry about those things. But it is a lot harder when you're like, well, I update my kernel every day and I'm going to try to have to recompile all this stuff. So that is a little bit disappointing. Uh-huh. And I am like the Hammer file system is technically very interesting. There's a lot of work going on. And I really would be disappointed if Linux didn't kind of have that. I am interested in like bcachefs and other things going on. I think it's important for the Linux community to keep up. And hopefully he's right, like, you know, if you, especially maybe now as we get to a future where Linux, you know, FreeBSD can run Linux, Windows run Linux, like there's lots of, um, lots of stuff happening with Linux, Docker containers, other things. Maybe we can get to a, a future where you have a better chance of using some of these very interesting other operating systems, FreeBSD, Illumos, and then running, you know, your Linux application on top if you can't get it native to the operating system you want to run. I'm not sure, but I think it's definitely worthy of, you know, people putting time and energy in and seeing what we can advance
1: it's been a long day i was i was not directed to you yes. i've been up since i've been up since 5 a.m my time file but systems now, are very interesting just after 9 p.m um, yes they are exactly yes they are so
0: thank you architect um that's a that's an awesome awesome bit of feedback i hope we've answered everything it was a long letter so i'm sure i've missed something you'll just have to write back in and if other people have advice opinions horror stories great stories go to jupiterbroadcasting.com/contact there you can find a form that will let us know all of your opinions and with that i think it's time for our final sponsor today which we're talking about storage so who else could it be but our friends at ix systems go on over to ixsystems.com/techsnap there you will find the definitive guide for buying hardware for open source software they've been doing this a long time they really are experts in the field of storage big data reliable hardware appliances You know, building servers that work right the first time. They will build you a custom server with incredible Intel processors. They've got talented sales engineers standing by, ready to talk to you, ready to learn about what your workflow is, what your workload is, how many IOPS you need. How many drives you need? What your storage requirements? What are your growth requirements? Right, so they've seen they've seen big installations, little installations. They've seen all the different types of problems that can have. So they can you know start asking you questions that you weren't going to think about till six months down the road. Maybe you're moving from the cloud to your own data center. IX Systems would be a great partner for something like that. Maybe you just need you know a new a second NAS to be another backup for your your home life or your small business or your office, or you're you know you're finally fed up with those big blue box vendors that uh, have terrible support and make you wait on hold and you really just want you know a personal touch you understand that your workload's important your business is important your clients are important and they have expectations of you IX systems once that understands that and wants to be your partner go check out some of the people that they work with people like adobe vmware noah sega Symantec, gm splunk tumblr hitachi linkedin like they work with big people doing big data, who have real data centers, who have petabytes of storage. So maybe you just need a FreeNAS. Go on over, check out the FreeNAS Mini. It's adorable. It's powerful. It's got a ton of storage. It's super easy. If you have a problem with it, IX system has great support. Maybe you just need, you know, you want a new server. You want to make sure it has IPMI. You want to make sure it has SAS expander. You want to make sure that you get the right kind of drive that have the longevity that have been burned in, tested, white glove service. You want to make sure that it's got the OS you want, with the file system you want, pre-configured, ready to go. They'll ship it to you. Goes right, you know, gets plugged right in, put in the rack, turned on, and you know, it can join your cluster right there. You don't get that kind of service very many places, and that's what makes iX systems different. You can tell that they get it, right? They get it. They get open source, they get servers, they get back-end, they get front-end, they get they get the whole game, right? They're, they're involved with projects like OpenZFS, they're involved with projects like TrueOS, FreeNAS. And they're involved with the community, like going over to their blog page. I was just at uh, Linux Fest Northwest, which was a ton of fun. Guess what? IX Systems was there too. You can see some awesome pictures there. Uh, it was a combination FreeBSD, FreeNAS, TrueOS, Lumina booth, um, which is awesome. And you know they're there. They want to hang out. They want to talk with people in the community. They have a ton of great swag. They have those BSD horns that everyone loves. More than that, if you just peruse their blog, you'll see a lot of what makes IX Systems different. They're not. Yes, they're a business, they're a successful business. They've been here a long time. They know what they're doing. But more than that, they're a part of the community and they're ready to be a partner with you. So don't waste any more time. Don't waste any more money. Go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And that brings us to the last segment of today's show. That's right. It's time for everyone's favorite, the Roundup. Dan and I have worked hard finding various links from around the world. They didn't make the cut for the top of the show, but these are still worth checking out. So, let's fly through them right now. What's first up, Mr. Dan?
1: Well, this first one is rather tongue-in-cheek, but kind of um, prophet- prophetic.
0: <laughs> <laughs> prophetic.
1: Something like that, anyway. In that ways in which the WannaCry ransomware could have been much worse.
0: Right. So, this is something we talked about. Huge story. I'm sure you've all heard about a lot about it. It was yep, on last yep.
1: episode. It was. So... How about time-based encryption? How could you make it worse? Time-based encryption. So basically, at the moment when the ransomware infects your machine and installs a crypto locker and immediately starts encrypting your file. But imagine if it did this. It goes around and infects everything, installs backdoor and keeps quiet. It infects other machines. Everything gets infected. And then on day 14, it activates itself and starts encrypting files. So basically the old version, the version that got out there, sort of started taking over machines and spreading and encrypting as it went. So once the first message came up, people started acting on it. But this way, you've got 14 days to spread before you do anything. That would be worse. But wait, there's more. What if it waited 30 days before it lets you know that it's encrypted the files. Ooh. So what it does is it infects everything, but it still allows files to be read and written. So what it does is install something. Like a Fuse-style you know, interface. Interesting. And, en- and encrypts. And then 30 days later, it removes the decryption key <sighs> so that you can't get anything read. Wow. So how are your backup points after 30 days?
0: Oh, that's evil. And I'm sure this would make it a lot harder to try to like trace the spread of this thing and understand when mm-hmm, it actually started.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. I doubt that a lot of people would have 30-day snapshots. But even if you did have 30-day snapshots, you're losing anything created recently. Yeah, totally. And, and you would have backed up stuff. Ugh. Anything oh, created man. in the last thirty days is backed up and encrypted,
0: doubly encrypted.
1: Uh, would it be? Well, I mean, if there's, I guess, if you're Reddit, no, no, yeah, it wouldn't be. No, no, the backups would not be encrypted because you're not doing a device-based right. backup. You'd be you're opening file. the file and yep. reading it, so you'd be reading the decrypted version. So maybe he's missing that point there.
0: Interesting. Either way, oh, man, that would be,
1: this is evil. Yep. yep. Now, what about extortion with your friends? So basically, your files get encrypted. You can pay to get your files back. But what if it's not your files you're responsible for? What if the, their files are your friends or colleagues? What if they told you who you get the virus from? Oh, so that you got infected because it came from there. You gave me this. You you fixed this. Yeah, you're liable now. Which is kind of silly because you've got to, if you patched your stuff, you wouldn't, this wouldn't be a problem. So yeah, right. don't blame someone else. So now one other thing they said, what if it was CryptoLocker with a Windows update DDoS? So you've got 200,000 machines out there. They're all infected. And they're all launching a DDoS against the Windows Update server, and no one gets the patches. Yeah, exactly. You, you can't patch because you can't get to the Windows <laughs> Update server. Oh, boy. So what do they suggest to stay safe? Enable auto-updates and have frequent backups and store them long enough. Store them for a long time. Yeah, right,
0: long enough that it would be... Uh inconvenient or unlikely that someone would, uh, you know, do something like this in a long enough time frame that would invalidate all of your backups Boy, that's that's hard, it really makes you you think about how secure your things are how good your backups are and uh, what's running on your system, yikes Uh. Okay, so uh, moving on to perhaps perhaps happier, not really, I don't know moving on to the next feedback, or roundup item anyway We've got an article over here from the uh, Joyant team about a post-mortem for an outage in U.S. East 1. What's this about?
1: I think this is the Brian—no. That would make Could sense. This be... Yeah. Is this the follow-up to— um... I think it is, because just by reading this, what, what are the— well, when I started reading this I started thinking about thinking about the Brian Cantrell um, video. And it'll become clear why. So due to an operator error, all US East one API systems and customer instances are simultaneously rebooted at such and such a time. Um Root cause of this was the result of an operator performing updates of some new capacity in our fleet, and they were using the tooling that allows for remote updates of software. So like Ansible or CFEngine or something, but I'm sure it wasn't one of them. The command to reboot the select set of new servers that needed to be updated was mistyped, and instead specified all servers in the data center. Unfortunately, the tool in question does not have enough input validation to prevent this from happening without extra steps or confirmation and went ahead and issued a reboot command to every server in US East 1 without delay. Boom. Reboot. So the tool they may have it works very well. They should be proud. It does. It does. So this was compounded. You know, you know reboot, you come back, that should be fine. But... The systems by design looked for a boot server to respond to Pixie Boot requests. But because they were all rebooting at the same time, there was extremely high contention for the TFTP boot infrastructure. And all of their infrastructure has throttles in place to ensure they cannot run away with that cannot run away with a machine. So they realize, oh my God, it's being throttled. So they removed the throttles. And this enabled most customer instances to come online over the following twenty to thirty minutes. So there, were, and then there are a small number of machines that have a, a known transient bug in a network driver on hardware, on legacy hardware. Oh no! Getting a DHCP lease upon boot occasionally fails. So in the past, the network device encounters this uh, boot time issue about ten percent of the time. So the solution there is just to reboot it again. Yikes. So what are we gonna do? We're gonna improve the tooling um, and make sure that they validate the input and it will not allow for all servers uh, and control plane servers to be rebooted simultaneously. So in closing, we were sorry for the magnitude of this issue and how it affected our customers, sorry. We hope it won't happen again.
0: Yikes! This really reminds me of that recent um, AWS outage where it was also ended up root cause was a was a fat fingering. Which, yes, boy, that's that's rough. Well, and I think we've all been there. You know, we're like, maybe you didn't even do it, but you were like, "Ooh, I better not hit enter on that command line."
1: Nobody at my work has ever heard of me rebooting a server by accident. I'm sure.
0: <laughs> no, never. Dan, you wouldn't. You're you're the admin.
1: Oh, I did. Huh. I, I, I hadn't been there long either.
0: It's like a rite of passage,
1: right? Whoops. A couple of months, maybe. Mm-hmm. Six months. I, I'm not sure.
0: I mean, but it's a, I it's always that battle, right, of like you want conciseness and expressivity and power and control. And when you, you know, you don't want to have to jump oh, through hoops no. to do things.
1: In, in my case, I was just in the wrong terminal session. Did Ooh. not look before I, I said, okay, I checked that. Yeah, that's right. Back to the terminal session. Okay, shut down, reboot. Oh.
0: That's rough. Boy. Oh,
1: that everyone just system. disappeared off IRC. <laughs> oh,
0: oh no. That's terrible news. Yes. Well, I'm sure you learned from that. I did. Just like Joyent has learned from this. I'm sure they'll have some more interesting stuff. They have some interesting architecture there. They run running, running quite the shop, so um, I'll be curious to see more from them. Me too. Okay, up next... million Bell customer email addresses stolen by an anonymous hacker. 1,700 names and phone numbers also stolen in a data breach. Uh Uh-oh. That does not sound good.
1: So Bell is apologizing after 1.9 email addresses were stolen. Nobody's quite sure who did it, and there's no indication that any financial password or other sensitive information was accessed. Uh, Bell was confident that the incident was unrelated to a massive spike in ransomware infections. So basically, this has nothing to do with... want um, WannaCry, cry. Uh, wanna cry. But there's a little bit more information in here, but basically I wanted to cover this because, unsurprisingly, it was not a US company. It was a Canadian company. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but Bell... Uh, Covers a whole lot of stuff. It, it covers satellite TV. It covers uh, um, cable t- cable TV. No, I don't think they have cable TV. It's only satellite TV, and um, of course, t- telephones. But yeah, they're a big company. Huge. <laughs> yeah. They do lots of things. Big bigger uh, media
0: ISP conglomerate thing. Yes. Someone that shows up. Uh... Similar people show up on this program all the time, turns out. Yes. Sounds like we could expect maybe some more things here, like the attacker or the possible attacker warns more will leak. This shows how Bell doesn't care for its customer safety, and they could have avoided this public announcement. Bell, if you don't cooperate, more will leak. And then a smiley face. Oh, boy.
1: Um. Interestingly enough, I knew the guy that used to answer the email address, abuse at bell.ca. Oh, nice. And he is now with another much more interesting enterprise.
0: Yeah, I hope so. That's not a great time to be involved with the Bell IT organization.
1: No, 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 that's not what I meant. I meant where he is now is a very interesting place to work, but I can't tell you where that is. Secret, secret. It is, it is very secret.
0: Okay, well, that's a perfect segue to our next roundup item. This is a blog post over at appcanary.com. Everything you need to know about HTTP security headers.
1: This was interesting because it's only modifying your HTTP headers and it gives you quite a bit of protection, like against cross-site scripting and against... uh, sort of man-in-the-middle attacks where you only provide HTTPS and someone tries to redirect uh, browser data to an HTTP connection and then they do HTTPS the rest of the way. And, excuse me, just little things that you can do as a website provider to make it better for the users that are using your website.
0: Yeah, I like that this was like, it looked like it was, um, you know, it's, it's modern, it's up to date, it's well curated, uh, so it can make it a really good place. And they have like, you know, they talk a lot about here, like how to do it, whether you're using Nginx or Rails or Django or Express.js or Varnet, like, so they really have a lot of stuff here for regardless of what you're doing, you don't have to be a security expert, you don't have to know a lot about this, but you can pretty quickly easily learn how to take your, you know, your application security up just a little bit, which is awesome.
1: Yeah, and they have a sign-up thing on the on the front page. Have you ever used them? I have not, no. Well, what happens if I type my name and address in here? What's the worst that could happen? Huh, sign up for a 14-day trial. Well, no. They want a little bit more information. 14-day trial, well, with our tiny open-source agent. No. Huh. I'll have a look later.
0: Yeah, so it's just kind of an interesting. So even if you don't, you know, even if you don't want to use their services, it's not the right value proposition for you. Um, this yep. is a good review of the various types of security you should be aware yeah. about if you're building a web stack application or even just consuming those. Which hey, we all do these days.
1: They don't support my platforms anyway. <sighs> that's too bad. Ruby and PHP, but that's it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and it's thirty bucks a month.
0: Okay so maybe reasonable maybe not depends on what you're doing what your needs are and yes, uh, your yes. security expertise but it's nice to see you know even if you can't maybe you can't afford to hire a permanent security developer for your team or whatever maybe this yes. is a good option
1: and at least this one blog post about the the headers is interesting reading and people should consider this
0: yeah exactly okay well i guess that brings us to the final roundup item this week This is an interesting project over at GitHub. How many people are around? Count the number of people around you by monitoring Wi-Fi signals. Interesting.
1: Now, someone points out right off the bat, it may be illegal to monitor networks for MAC addresses, especially on networks that you do not own. And then there's a link to a discussion page. And in the discussion page, it mentions this interesting point. I am not a lawyer, but if you walk down the street with your smartphone in your pocket with Wi-Fi turned on, you will be, quote, intercepting thousands of packets from networks you have no right to connect to. Because that's how Wi-Fi works.
0: Yeah, it is. Totally. Which is uh, very true.
1: If all you're doing is monitoring data that's flowing by your... Service.
0: Right. It seems like it should fall maybe into the same the same vein as you know like um, photography in public spaces or you know other things like that where you don't have yep. reasonable require reco- you know.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're sitting there in Starbucks. Mm-hmm. And basically, it's just networks that are flying all around you. If you don't want people to listen, encrypt them.
0: I think this is interesting uh, in particular because I've seen some like, I know there's a couple new products that have been launched where they're you're trying to do home security based on Wi-Fi sensing and other things and some, some research from MIT and others that are exploring this space as well. But this is awesome because they've got like hacker-worthy instructions for how to get some like, you know, cheap antennas or other things, put it together, start playing with it. And mm-hmm, it's right on mm-hmm. GitHub so you can just clone it down and start playing
1: with yep. it. And the guy says, what would you use this for? And he uses it um, just to see if, if, you know, who's around the house or is my roommate home, for example. Mm-hmm.
0: Or maybe, uh, you know, you could have simpler thing, or you know, it triggers based on actions or, hey, you're, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you put something on your dog and your dog comes into the house and it triggers a food bowl
1: or who knows. Yep. You can do a whole lot of stuff with us. Awesome.
0: Well, I might have to give this a try later. I think I have at least a couple, uh. Couple of things that can do monitor mode in my various uh, peripherals, so it seems worth a shot. Yep, I agree. Although I'm sure it'll be hard because I live in an apartment building, so I don't know. Idea- I don't know how to validate it because there's like a ton of people around already.
1: Well, you can tell how many people are around. Yeah,
0: that's true. And I guess I should roughly estimate. I,
1: be- I bet if you plotted a graph, it would be. Oh
0: yeah. Oh now I have TechSnap homework.
1: <laughs> I like that.
0: Awesome. Okay, well I guess that wraps up today's roundup. Anything you'd like to add before we get out of here, Dan?
1: No. Just make sure you patch your shit. You're going to be in trouble if you don't.
0: Exactly. You don't want to be on Dan's patch list. Let me just tell you that. So, go on over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There you can bone up on our past episodes, the previous incarnation of this show, the new shows on the network. Yeah, that's right. Ask Noah. The Linux Action News and all the other fine shows that are already on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. You can go to the contact page there. We've also got a calendar, uh, the live page. Uh, Let's see, so much more, really. It's a great website, so go there. Um, If you want to have more feedback options, you can go to techsnap.reddit.com, or you can find us both on Twitter. I'm at Wes Payne, and he is at techsnap underscore Dan. With that, that's been episode 320 of the TechSnap program. Be here next week. Uh, We'll meet you here. Yeah. Uh-huh.